How are we? We good? Good, good. Hope you survived the first week of school and you're looking for some encouragement, all right? Uh, if that's the case, then uh, I strongly suggest you go eat something. And so that's always what I love. I'm just kidding. But if you got a Bible, open up to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to wrap up the letter of 1 John today. And I got to tell you that this message is a doozy. Speaking of food, um, I might just call it a double doozy. And yes, that is a reference to a great American cookie company who has the double doozy cookie. If you've never had that, it's amazing. It's two cookies with ice cream in the middle. It's fantastic. But the message is a double doozy just doesn't taste as good, all right? Uh, and, and what I mean by that is this is one of those texts that when you read it, um, you got to reread it and you got to reread it. And, and to be honest with you, when I was a, a believer, I was a new believer, I read this text several times in this letter, in fact, in a lot of ways, and it was confusing to me. And so I just want to kind of say that on the outset because we're going to get into some text here that can be confusing, and that's okay if it is. My goal today is as humbly as I can, as helpful as I can to explain what I feel like this means based upon what John has been saying in this letter. And so you'll see in just a second. But before we get to there, let's pray and ask God to bless our time together. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for who you are. God, I pray that as we open your word, as always, that you would open our eyes. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. Uh, you revealed yourself primarily through your son. And we have these words of scripture to help us understand and know who he is and what he did. And so, God, I pray as we open this word today that, again, you would open our eyes to see the truth in it, help it to apply to our life and give us encouragement from it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. First John chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 16. We'll finish up in verse 21. That's the end of chapter 5. And then next week, we'll get into 2 John, and then we'll be a couple weeks there. And then in 3 John, we'll wrap this series up by Labor Day weekend. But 1 John chapter 5, again, if you don't have a Bible, it's here on the screens. And if you don't even own one, we'd love to give you one for free as a gift. You can go out to the lobby after the service is over. Verse 16 and 17 is where we're going to start first, and then we'll stop and talk about it. It says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. The rest of verse 16, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. What in the world does that mean? I don't know. Let's go get the double doozies, right? From... No, it, it is confusing, or it can be confusing, but I think it's very important to understand that this comes at the end of John's letter. And so therefore, these are kind of conclusion statements. These are kind of wrapping up everything else that he has said. And so what it helps us to understand these statements is the rest of the letter and how John has been writing. The reason why that's important is because the, the principle of hermeneutics, which is what it means to study the Bible, is that Scripture interprets Scripture. And so if you're confused about Scripture, then you have to read the wider context, because remember, this is a letter, and so John has been writing something. Now he's five chapters in, and he's wrapping it up, and so therefore, John is not introducing a new thought. This is not like one of those movies, if you've ever had this happen to you, that at the end, it gets to the point and it doesn't wrap up the way you thought it was going to, 
like it just didn't resolve all the tensions that it created. And you get to the end of it and you're like, that was worthless. That was pointless. Why did they do that to me? Why didn't they wrap this up? Why didn't they get married? Why did she die? Why did, and, and the reason being is because that's the way life is a lot of times. But when you're trying to not just create a movie, but when you're writing a letter to communicate something, John's not writing something in a way to kind of confuse them all and be like, ah, see you later. Enjoy the art, right? John is writing the letter to be helpful. He said it over and over again. I write these things so that you don't sin. And so now he's giving us categories of sin. And it's important to understand how he starts verse 16 is connected to verse 14 and 15, which if you were here last week, we talked about where John was talking about praying. He said, we know we have what we ask of God if we ask according to his will. And so John is talking about praying and contextually he's continuing that. And he's saying that one thing that we should pray for as believers is we should pray for our brothers. And the word there, brothers just means brothers and sisters. We should pray for those who are believers. You could use the word believer there. You should pray for believers who might be caught in a sin. The reason why that's an important one, because John's not just making a theological point here about sin that leads to death and sin that doesn't lead to death, which I'll get into that in just a second, but he's making the practical point that he's made throughout this whole letter and how believers love one another. He said that over and over again, love one another, love one another, love one another. Well, what's one of the primary ways you can love one another? Pray for one another. Pray for one another for those, he says, if you see a brother committing a sin, the word they're committing literally is sinning. So you could translate it literally, a brother sinning a sin. Sinning a sin. If you see a brother sinning a sin, you should ask God and he will give him life. And the hymn contextually is the brother who is sinning a sin. Now, the reason why I want to start there is because we'll get into the theological point of what he means here, but the practical point is very simply, when you see somebody sinning a sin, how do you react towards them? How do you practically respond to them? Do you respond like most Christians, oftentimes, sadly, in a very critical manner? I don't know if you've noticed this, but you're very gracious to yourself when you sin and very judgmental to others when they sin. Have you noticed that? I mean, we know this from psychology because we understand that when we sin, we think, oh, it's because of circumstances. And so this is what we tell ourselves. But when someone else sins, it wasn't because of circumstances. It was because of character. They did it because they're bad people. We did it because we were in bad situations. You see, you see the difference there? This is how we judge ourselves. But the Bible takes the reverse approach. You should be the hardest on yourself and the easiest on them. I love how Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 1. You don't have to turn there. I'll just reference it for you. He says, if you see anyone caught in a sin, if you see a brother caught in a sin, those who are spiritual, he says, should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. A spirit of gentleness, the word there is spirits, pneuma, which is the word for the Holy Spirit. So I think he's saying you should restore him by the fruit of the spirit. What is the fruit of the spirit? Gentleness. 
And how do you have the fruit of the Spirit as a believer? You've sown to the Spirit. And so when the Spirit is working in your life, guess what the fruit is going to be? You're going to be more gentle with others. And so if somebody comes to you, they follow Matthew 18, but they follow Matthew 18 without a spirit of gentleness, in in the way of like, you are sinning. How dare you? You are a horrible human being. Well, at least they came to you, right? At least they didn't do the form of Christian uh, gossip that we call prayer requests, right? You need to, we need to pray for so-and-so. Why? Oh, you don't know what she's doing. It's a form of gossip, right? Talking to other people about other people, which is gossip. So at least the person came to you and they pointed it out, but that's not the end of the command. The end of the command, you get, again, take the whole scripture. We have to go to those people with the spirit of gentleness. Why? Because the heart of a believer understands that sometimes we still sin. And I love how he says here, ask and he, God, will give them life, give him life. The, the word there for life is zoe. There's different ways to refer to life, but this word here in the Greek refers to life to the fullest. You know, Jesus said in John 10, 10, I came and may have life and have it to the full or have abundant life. So here's what John is getting at. When a believer or a brother is sinning, then they're not experiencing their best life. They're not having life to the full. And those who see that, who are brothers and sisters who see that, should first pray and ask God with the spirit of gentleness towards that person and says, God, I want them to have life. Think about this as a parent who sees their child sinning. The heart of a parent is not to win an argument, but to win the person. You know what I'm saying? The heart of a mom, or I should say, it should be the heart of a mom or a dad, who again has the Holy Spirit, is not to just be right to put their kids in their place, but the heart of a father, the heart of the mother, is to restore that child, like Galatians 6, 1 says, so that they can have their best life. And we know, as one who's gone through being a teenager, who's gone through young adulthood, hey, that ain't the best life. Getting it from that place or that source, which you'll see in just a second, is false. So here's what I want. I don't want to neglect this and just move on to, okay, what is he talking about? The two different kinds of sins here. What he's saying is those who are brothers, who are believers, we should first pray. Our hearts should break when we see our friends, fellow believers, our family members in Christ that are sinning. We should ask God to give them his best life for them. That should be our disposition towards them, that we want something for them. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Because let me tell you this, if you are praying to God for God to give that person life, then when you approach them with their sin, you're going to do it far differently. If you approach them with their sin because you want to be right, you'll be a jerk. But if you want to approach them in their sin because you want to restore them, you'll be loving. You'll approach somebody like this, man, you know I love you. And I'm only pointing this thing out because I've seen it. And I want you to have your best life. And you know this is not what gets you your best life. 
You, you know, you've told me you were ashamed of these things in the past. This is how Paul argues in Romans. What fruit did you get from the things that you're now ashamed of? He says in Romans six, man, you know, this is not the best. I want the best for you. See, when a brother or sister comes to you like that in regards to your sin, isn't it easier to hear? Like two of you said that. Okay, I guess no one's ever come to you. I guess y'all just all do the Christian form of gossip. Um, But when somebody comes to me like that, Jason, listen, man, I love you. You know I love you. And I want the best for you. And I have asked God to give you life. But I want to point it out to you. That's the spirit of the church. Man, if we have a church like that, where we're loving one another well like that, not only would we be more like Christ, but we'll actually be a family as we do it. We'll be functional, not dysfunctional. All right, now, what in the mess does he mean when he says, when you see a brother, a believer, committing a sin that does not lead to death? Then he says, there is a sin that does lead to death. So John breaks up sin basically into two categories here. Sins that don't lead to death and sins that do lead to death. Now, throughout church history, the church has defined these terms very differently. And kind of the majority report for the most of church history is we have defined these into two categories of mortal sins and what's called venial sins, which would be non-mortal sins. So we categorize things like deadly sins and non-deadly sins. And how many deadly ones are there? There was seven. There's been a couple more that have been added. But we, we still talk about the seven deadly sins. And there's kind of the categories. And those are sins that lead to death. And the idea is those are really bad. And then you got these that are bad, the venial ones, the non-mortal ones, but they're not as bad as these. And so we kind of think in categories of sins that there are bad ones and then really bad ones. But I think it's important to know in verse 17, he says, listen, all wrongdoing is sin. All wrongdoing, the word there, wrongdoing means unrighteousness. All unrighteousness is sin in saying there are not categories of sin. There are not like class B sins, class C sins, and then class A sins. And a good Christian is the one who commits class A sins. You know, class A sins are like speeding, you know. I mean, sorry, that'd be class C sins. Class C sins are like speeding, you know, like cursing them out in your head, you know. Or if you say it out loud, you translate it into a Christian cuss word, right? You say it differently. That's a class C sin. Class B goes up a little bit more, you know, like lying, stealing, harming somebody. Class A sins are like adultery, you know, sexual sins. That's like class A. And so in churches, we kind of think like this, don't we? And those of us who, in our mind, kind of commit class A, class C sins, We look at those who commit class A sins like the real bad ones. Man, those are the real bad ones. Thank God I'm not like them. This is what happened when Jesus was talking about the the righteous man that came to the altar and said, thank God I'm not like all those other sinners. 
But he said he walked away unjustified. But then the sinner came and said, have mercy on me, Lord, I'm a sinner. And Jesus said he walked away justified. What's the difference between the two? The difference between the two is not the gradations of their sin. The difference between the two is one had his sins forgiven and one didn't. So when John talks about sins that don't lead to death and sins that do lead to death, again, we have to let scripture interpret scripture. I think what John is saying here is he's summarizing everything that he said in the letter so far that, listen, there are two types of people. There are believers and there are unbelievers. And notice he says, if a brother commits a sin that doesn't lead to death, which then contextually would mean those who do commit sins that lead to death are non-brothers. You see what I'm saying there? You got believers who commit sins that don't lead to death. You got unbelievers or non-brothers that commit sins that do lead to death. What is he talking about? I think what he's talking about is both of them sin. One of them sin is forgiven. The other is not. Think about it like this. Paul says in Romans 6, when he talks about the punishment of sin. He said the wages of sin is what? Anybody know? Death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And so when he's contrasting death and life there, he's not talking physical death. He's talking spiritual death. And so he says the wages of that is spiritual death. Yes, physical death was a result of the fall, but he's looking past that and he dies twice. And so he's saying that's the end of that. But then the person who has grace, the end of that is life. What's the difference? Both people, both had sin. Both had sin. But their destinations are now different. Think about it like this. Every single one of us were headed down a road. We were headed down a road. And that road, the end of it, let's just use the table here as the end, is hell. This is why when people say, if God's a loving God, why did he throw people in hell? He didn't throw people anywhere. They were headed there themselves. So those who commit sins that lead to death are those who do not have their sins forgiven. They don't have their sins forgiven. They don't have grace. They don't have a relationship with Christ. They have denied Christ. That's what the group has done. John says in John 2, they went out from us. And the way that we know that they're not from us is they left us. What did they leave? The usness. They left the brotherhood. They left the belief that Jesus is the only way. So a brother who commits sin that doesn't lead to this destination, somewhere along this destination met Christ, and now their destination went this way. And their end is no longer death. Their end is now life. Those whose sins haven't been forgiven, their end is death. Those whose sins have been forgiven, their end is life. But make no mistake, both groups sin. I love how Piper, John Piper says it. The only thing that can damn you forever is unforgiven sin. The difference between a believer and a non-believer is not that they don't sin. The difference is a believer's sin is forgiven. An unbeliever's sin is not. So when he uses two categories here, here's the two categories, forgiven sin and unforgiven sin. The only difference between you and a non-believer, if you're a believer, is not that you don't sin. The only difference is now your sin's forgiven. Your sin has been paid for, and your destination is now life, not eternal death. 
Again, two categories here. So when John says all wrongdoing is sin, listen, make no mistake about it. There's not grade A sins. There's not grade B sins, not grade C sins. All of it is sin. All of it is wrong. All of it is punishable by death. But the brother or the sister, the believer in Christ, now when they sin, it doesn't lead to death anymore. It leads to life in Christ, which is why you pray. You pray and ask God, God, would you remind that person that they used to be on the road to sin, to to death, that, that their sin caused that? Would you help them understand now that now sinning is not what brings them zoe? It's not what brings them full life? Being saved, being sanctified, following you, being like you, believing you, loving others is what brings life. And God says, when you pray like that for people whose sin is not leading to death, God will give them life. Another way to say it is he will apply to them what he's already given them. So those are the categories. The categories very simply are forgiven sin and unforgiven sin. The reason why that's important is look at verse 18 and 19. Verse 18 says this. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Verse 19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Let's stop and talk here for a second about this one. If you just read verse 18, and, and it says, all who've been born of God do not keep on sinning. If you read that, and you're like, well, darn, I sinned this week. Anybody sin this week? This should be every, every room in the house, right? Jasper, come on. I know. I'm a double doozy, man. Yeah, we all sin this week. Again, the believer sins and the unbeliever sins. So when he says here, anyone who's been born of God, and that's written that phrase there, born of, has been, is in the perfect tense, which means something happened in the past that is now producing a current reality. You've been born again. Those who have been born again no longer sin. Well, you first have to ask the question, what category of sin? Right? Didn't he just give us two categories? Sin that doesn't lead to death? That would be a yes. Okay, I'm just making sure you're with me. Sin that doesn't lead to death, sin that does lead to death. And so if you just rip verse 18 out and use it as a club to say, you're not born of God if you, don't, if you sin. I don't know why you would say it like that, but that's kind of how, you know. <laughs> that is not a spirit of gentleness. You have, what kind of sin? Sin that doesn't lead to death or sin that does lead to death? Contextually, here's what I think John is saying. Again, this is my opinion. You may disagree with me. That's all right. But I think what John is saying is those who have been born again, they don't keep on sinning in a way that leads to death anymore. Their sin no longer leads to death. They have a different, their sin has been forgiven. What does that mean? It doesn't mean, and and you got to clarify here, it doesn't mean that you should say, man, well, if God forgives all my sin, well, I can just keep on sinning. And so people think, well, if God's grace covers it all, then why can't I just keep on sinning? To that person, I would say, then you don't understand grace. 
I've said this before, I'll say it again, and I'll say it for years to come. Grace is not a license to sin. It's the power of God to do right. Contextually, think about it like this. Paul says in another place, I worked harder than all of them, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God in me. Nevertheless, I worked harder than them all. What is Paul saying there? Apparently, the fruit of grace looks like work. Notice what I said there, the fruit of grace. I didn't say the root of grace. The root of grace is the work of Christ. The fruit of grace is the work of Christ in us to be more like Christ. And so if you have the mentality of, I can just keep on sinning because God's grace forgives me, then I would say to you, you're still sinning in a way that leads to death. Because you misunderstood why God saved you. Why in the world would God save you from sin whose wages are death just to forgive you to keep doing that, thinking that it's going to give you life? Why would he save you from it and throw you right back into it? What is the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. So why in the world would God say, I'm just going to baptize your behavior and you can keep doing what your old self wanted to do because now you have grace. No, says no, no, you have a different destination now. And so a different destination now means you've been born again. You're on a different track. And so now, yeah, occasionally your flesh is going to want to go back to that track. And when it does, that's not a sin that leads to death because grace forgives that. Grace empowers that. And you get back on a track that leads to more life. Why? Because Jesus didn't just die to get us to heaven. Jesus died to get us to his father. And we have to understand that. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying heaven's not a place, but here's the point. When you describe heaven and you leave out the very presence of God, and you talk about streets of gold, mansions of glory, pearly gates, Peter standing at them, which is not true. When you talk about it in all these things and you don't see it as God, what Jesus is saying is he got you back into the presence of God. And now your sins are forgiven. And now when you obey God, you enjoy more of his presence. You're restored back into a relationship with him. So why in the world would you want to do things that are going to separate you from that relationship? So he says, those who have been born again, they don't sin like they used to. Doesn't mean you don't struggle with sin. Again, we know that's not true because 1 John chapter 2, he said, I write these things so that you don't sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. My name is Jason. I'm a believer. I still struggle with sin. But now my relationship with sin has changed. What's amazing, when he uses this word here, from, everybody who's from God, we're from God, that is a preposition of relation which means now I'm in relationship with God. And if I'm in relationship with God, my relationship with sin has changed. I no longer see sin as the pathway to life. I see God as the pathway to life. Now, I still have a flesh until God resurrects my body. I still, sometimes my flesh will say to me, yeah, God's lying. He's holding out on you. Exactly the same thing that Satan said to Adam and Eve. You can find life outside of God. And John is saying, those who've been born of God... They don't keep sinning in relationship to sin like they used to. Now they hate it. Now they hate it. 
I love how Paul says it in Romans chapter seven. Romans chapter seven was so helpful to me when I would get confused by 1 John. Because I'd read 1 John and says, anyone who's been born of God doesn't keep on sinning. And so I'd be like, well, darn, I'm not born of God. So I must have got saved a thousand times. You've heard me say that. I got baptized three times. I'm not saved, save me. That used to be my prayer for my entire teenage years. If I'm not saved, save me. If I'm not saved, save me. Because if I was saved, I wouldn't keep on sinning. But Romans 7 was always so helpful because when you read the Apostle Paul say things like, why do I do what I don't want to do? I don't do the things I want to do. I do do the things I don't want to do. Who can free me from this? He says, thank God, Jesus Christ. It was so emotionally helpful for me to understand. You know, I still struggle with sin, but my relationship with it has changed now. Now I hate it. I used to love it. Now I hate it. And here's what's amazing to me. Not only does my relationship with sin change, but it changes based upon not only how it affects me, but how it affects my relationship with God. Let me use marriage as an analogy, as the Bible does often. When Lindsay and I, my wife, first got married, we'd be married uh, in January for 17 years. When we first got married, when I would sin against her, when I would be mean or I would say something, I was really just mad that it inconvenienced me. Man, I know you've never thought like this, but you've said something that was dumb and you're like, dang it, I just ruined my next 45 minutes. <laughs> right? I know you've never thought like that. And, and so the thing that you're sorry for really, it's not that you upset the other person. You're really sorry that you just made your own life uncomfortable for a little while. And that's a half-hearted apology. It's like when someone says, I'm sorry you took it that way. I just, I mean, I, in Jesus' name, I want to trip people when they say that. Because <laughs> you know what they're saying? I'm sorry you took that wrong. Oh, so it's now my fault that you did that? See, early on in my marriage, that's how I talked. But when you live with somebody for 16 and a half years, you grow to love them in a way that's self-sacrificing. Now, when I do something dumb, it breaks my heart that I upset the woman I love. It breaks my heart that I would treat her that way. It breaks my heart that I don't treat her the way God treats her. You see the difference? Now, by God's grace, yes, you should sin less. You won't be sinless, but you should sin less. But here's an encouragement I want to give you. Even though you sin less, you feel more. It's deeper now. So those of you that have struggled with sin, you've been walking with Jesus for decades and you struggle with sin and you feel so bad, you feel so guilty when you sin and you think I'm so stupid. Here I am 20 years and I'm still not past this. You're sinning less, hopefully, which is good. But here's my encouragement to you. You're gonna feel it deeper though. And the reason why you're going to feel it deeper is because you're now more in love with your father. And when you're more in love with somebody, when you sin against them, it hurts worse. So don't think that if it hurts worse, you're not saved. If it hurts worse, that means you're now in relationship with somebody. And it breaks your heart that you broke their heart. I think that's the context of the kind of way John's talking about here. 
Those who have been born of God don't just keep sinning against him like it means nothing. Those who have been born of God love God and they want to restore a relationship with God. Doesn't mean they need to rededicate or recommit or get saved again. It just means they need to repent. And what does repentance mean? Repentance is not simply confession. It starts there. Confession is I have done wrong. I agree with you, God, about this sin. Repentance is you go a step further and you say, forgive me. Not only do I agree with you, but I need your grace to help me do better. Repentance is not, I'm sorry you took it that way, God, but repentance is, I don't want to break your heart anymore. Would you give me life? Repentance goes beyond. This is how you know someone is really repentant. Do they still love their sin? Do they still love it? They still want to bring it over here in the corner and nurture it, me and my sin. Or do they hate it? He goes on, look at verse 20. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Again, that's been his message throughout the whole letter. And he's contrasting the true God to the false God, the true Christ to the antichrist. He used that word earlier in the letter. And he had just said that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But those who have been born of God, the one born of God, Jesus Christ, protects them and Satan can't touch them. You know what that means? I love how Jesus said it in the gospel of John. Those that the father has put in my hand, no one can snatch them out of it. You're not saved because you loved him. You're saved because he loved you and he holds you. He's got you. He protects you. Now, Satan still comes and tries to attack you, and he does. He's gotten a certain measure of uh, of, uh, a leash. He can still come and attack us, but he can't have you. Why? Because you're now in relationship with the true God. You know the true God. You are in the true God. The word they're in is a preposition of position. You are in him. You live in him. You're in his hands. And if you're in his hands, you have true life. You have eternal life. And then this last verse, look at verse 21. It's very interesting to me. I used to always think, what a weird way to end a letter. But look at verse 21. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Letter over. No goodbye. No, I love you. Doesn't close it out like Paul. Me and the brothers, we greet you. Keep yourself from idols. And you're like, whoa. Remember, this is the end of the letter. So this is John's conclusion statement. So here's the best way I can say it. That verse right there, verse 21, should be the lens through which you see the entire letter. Again, that's the hermeneutic, which means the principle of studying the scripture. How do you study 1 John? You study it through the lens of 1 John 5, 21. Keep yourself from idols. What is an idol? An idol is a false god. And the entire letter, John has been describing people who went after false gods and what it looked like, what their result was. And he's been describing people who stayed after the true God. They had right doctrine, right belief. They loved one another. This is how you know, he says. And then he gives this last charge. So the title of my message, keep yourself from idols. 
Why would he end that? I love what Tim Keller says in his book, Counterfeit Gods. I've actually got the quote here on the screen. He says this, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. See, what's amazing, you go back into Exodus and you look at the Ten Commandments, what are the first two? You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall have no idols. Think about it like this. Whatever you idolize reveals what is your God. And John is saying the same thing here. Whatever you idolize in your life is your God. Now, we would say, I don't have a golden statue in my foyer, and when you walk into my house, great. But that don't mean you don't have an idol. Because an idol is anything that you tell yourself, if I have that, I have life. Keller goes on, and I love how he describes this. Idols can be good things that we turn into God things. It can be a relationship. It can be work. It can be success. It can be servant. It can be status. It can be work. All good things. Mark Driscoll says a good thing that you turn into a God thing becomes a bad thing. So why in the world would John close this out like this? What he's saying is, listen, do you have an idol in your life? Do you have a false God that you're looking to, to give you life? If your relationship with sin hasn't changed to the point to where you worship the true God and you know, and you can recognize the lie that says, if you'll just do it without God, you'll get life. And you say, no, that's not true. That's a false God. You're lying to me because I know that life is in Jesus. And living in his commands. And so the biggest test for us to see if we're a believer, we're a brother, if we're sinning in a way that leads to death or sinning in a way that doesn't lead to death is what is most important. What's your idol? Calvin said our hearts are an idol factory. We just keep replacing it with something else, thinking that something else can give us what God can give us alone. And that's exactly what Satan told Adam and Eve, and they took the bait. And John's saying, don't take it. Don't take it. So as we wrap up this letter, very simply, if you're a believer, you're in the true God, you will seek the true God to give you life. If you're not a believer, you're in a false God, and you will seek things outside of God that don't give you life. And that's going to end in death. So again, the response is like always, do you have the son? If you have the son, you have life. If you don't have the son, you have death. But if you have the son, believe the son. So into your relationship with the son. Don't believe that real life is found in sin. It's found in the Son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word as always. Thank you for the truth of it. God, I thank you that um, Jesus came so that we might have life and have it to the full. And so, God, there's really two categories of people here. 
those that don't have life, they've not been saved, but then those that do have life, but they don't have it to the full because they've been still sinning in ways that don't lead to death and it's been robbing them of life. And so God, I wanna pray first for those who don't have the son, who don't have life. They've not been saved. I pray that you would save them. Nobody looking around or talking here as we wrap this up, but there's never been a point in time in your life where you have crossed over from death to life, where you've been saved, your sins have been forgiven. Then your life is still headed to death. But today you can take a different road because of the work of Christ on the cross for you. So if you want to be saved, if you want to trust Jesus, I'm going to ask you to pray. The Bible says confess, believe. Don't do it out loud. Just right there by yourself. Pray with me. If you want to trust Christ, it goes like this. Say, God, thank you for loving me that you sent your son in my place for my sin. I ask you to save me. Give me life. I believe in Jesus. Thank you for loving me. Now, for those of you who just prayed that very simply, would you, we just want to celebrate with you again, nobody looking around or talking. Would you just simply lift your hand up so we can see that? Thank you. We got men and women going to walk around, put a gift in your hand. When they do, you can put it down. And just a, a minute after we're done, we're going to have baptisms outside. We're doing it every weekend in the month of August. Just for those of you that maybe just trusted Christ or maybe those of you that had already trusted Christ and, and you came prepared, right now, you can go ahead and stand up and head to the back. If you came prepared to get baptized today, you can go ahead. If, you're, if they're in your row, no harm, no foul, just let them out. We'll celebrate in a minute. But maybe there's some of you here that you didn't come prepared to get baptized. Maybe you just trusted Christ. Well, we can get it done today. Baptism is just simply a, the first step of obedience that we're called to take because it's professing to the world the inward reality that's already happened in our hearts. So if you didn't come prepared to get baptized or you trusted Jesus today, you can stand up and head to the back right now. We got clothes for you. We got towels for you. We got everything that you need. We'd love to have you baptized today. And that's just telling the world, I have trusted Jesus. I have life. I have the son, the true God. And then for those of us like myself who would say that you know Jesus, you are a believer. But if you were honest, you're still struggling with some sins. And, and yes, by God's grace now, those sins are not leading to death, but they are robbing you of the fullness of life. Again, the response is the same. You confess and repent. You confess, you call it what it is. You say it's sin. You repent, you ask God to give you grace to overcome it. And then by his grace, you obey his commands. And I promise you, you'll have a fuller life. You now won't be ashamed of the fruit that comes from that. And so please don't think that if you're struggling with sin that you're not saved. 
If you have trusted in Jesus, he has forgiven your sins. And now for the rest of your life, by the grace of God, you have to live in that life. And that involves confession and repentance. So you don't need to be saved again. You don't need to be baptized again. You just need to restore the relationship. Just confess it and say, God, I want more. I'm sorry that I didn't believe you. And he is faithful. God, thank you for loving us like a father, for loving us like a parent who wants the best for us. You so want us to have the life that you offer, not just because you want to be right and justified, but you want us to have that relationship. And so God, I pray that we would be the kind of church that operates that kind of way, that we would work to restore our brothers and sisters with a spirit of gentleness, not because we're trying to point out sin, but because we want the best for them. And God, I pray that we would help each other to have life to the fullest because your spirit works best through your body, through your believers, through your family. And we don't want to be dysfunctional, God. We want to have life to the full. And so God, if there is somebody we need to have a conversation with about sin, help us to do it in such a way that's loving, that's humble, that's not judgmental. As you said, let us look to our own eyes first and see what plank we need to remove. And then approach our brother or sister in gentleness and say, I love you too much to let you keep doing this. God, that's what we want. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.